Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that is proud to have contributed to Britons cutting 10% of their energy consumption. Because, you know, as soon as they hear this show, they turn off their devices and then sit in the dark till they can forget that it ever happened. I'm Tina Duyevin this week, as Tory MPs argue over the building of onshore wind farms, I wonder if the trick is to promise to have loads of them, but then cancel them out by removing another noisy, annoying eyesore, but you know, one that's harmful to the environment. That's right, the Conservative Party. It is, as I'm sure you'll agree, very shocking to hear that net migration to the UK is at a record high. I mean... Who needs that many nets? Isn't our fishing industry fucked? How many goals do we have to build? How much hair do we have that must be contained? Ha! I, of course, joke. The real reason it's beyond concerning that migration to the UK is now over half a million at 504,000 is because it means, for some really odd reason, people still actually want to come here. Haven't we done enough to put them off yet? What else do we have to do to let the world know that this island is just one step away from becoming a floating skip inhabited only by dogs scripted by Wes Anderson? Actually, scrap that last bit. That actually sounds like an improvement and surely would only encourage people to visit even more. It makes me worried and concerned that hope has died even for those willing to travel miles to flee a war zone if the place they choose to end up in is not Finland with its happiest nation in the world ranking or Sweden, Denmark or Canada ranking top three with best quality of life in 2022 or even Italy which despite a big Nazi prime minister has the best ranked food in the world. No, no, they've risked their all and faced death just to end up here. The land of ambulance waiting times that are so long they'd be better off spending funding on decent hold music that you could listen to as you died. Where neither option of live to work or work to live is available and where our cultural high points are watching as a man responsible for letting a lot of people die gets paid a load of money to gargle a kangaroo dick. Then again, maybe I'm overlooking that if you come from a country where you're persecuted and probably even executed for who you are, coming to somewhere else where they'll just let you perish in your own home from hypothermia, that looks like a golden opportunity. Maybe it'd be too much to go somewhere where you're treated as a human being and it's much safer to kind of wean you off authoritarianism in slow baby steps. That might explain why the Labour Party are talking about immigration like it's a drugs issue. Either that or they just get high off hatred like Sith Lords and I suppose that is definitely one way to prepare to take over from a Conservative government. Labour leader and like if someone put their face through the hole in a massage table and it got stuck and then they just had to wear it forever, Keir Starmer said the common goal must be to help the British people off its immigration dependency. What a bizarre way to talk about it. What's their plans then to allow seasonal work only and then extended holidays, then only city breaks and finally once we feel strong enough just erect giant walls around the island and then only Brits can have low paid jobs and shit living conditions. Ah, the dream. That's the issue, isn't it? These people coming over here holding up all our public institutions that refuse to pay properly. I suppose if everyone stopped arriving, then nurses wouldn't have to go on strike because there wouldn't be any in the first place. Maybe I'm being a cynic and I should be lauding that in this ever-divided political climate, there is at least one issue that all the major parties are agreed on. No, not austerity. The other one. No, not selling weapons to oppressive regimes. Yeah, no, still the other one. That's right. None of them want anyone at all to come here. And I mean, perhaps that is right. I mean, what if those hopeful, intelligent, brilliant humans who just like a decent existence come here and then, you know, infect us with optimism or politeness or something horrible like that? Imagine the awful cultured place we might become and there is nothing British about that. 
Thank goodness we have a Prime Minister like try-hard cheese string Rishi Sunak, who during his leadership campaign said how proud he was of being the son of immigrants who were allowed to come here. That is important, and exactly why Sunak is not a hypocrite if he just changes the rules so absolutely no one else is. The Prime Minister's latest ingenious way of curbing the figures is by suggesting that they may block numbers of foreign students allowed to study in the UK. Yeah, get those bastards that just want to learn and fund our higher education institutions. I mean, there is zero point in those young people travelling over when all they'll be educated in is that universities have been sucked dry of all funds, all the staff are on strike, and there's little evidence that any of the jobs you may become qualified for are worth it anyway. Medical student? May as well just practice not sleeping or eating for days. Studying law? Why bother when you can get the same experience by watching most of a murder mystery but then not seeing the end for four years due to delays? The several-time disgraced Home Secretary and what if Abby Kadabi had a crack habit, Suella Braverman, is apparently working flat out to resolve the issue of high immigration figures, by which I think they mean she's bullying staff even out of office hours. She wants to find a way to return those travelling from safe countries like Albania back to their country as quickly as possible. Well, Suella, have you tried just welcoming them personally when they arrive? I reckon they'd turn around in seconds. It's a Home Secretary's only plan for anything, isn't it? Fix a problem by just giving it to someone else to deal with. I reckon if she got into a car accident, she'd swap its licence plates with a nearby parked one and just drive off. The Manston Asylum Centre was closed after controversy about overcrowding and Bravman appears to have dealt with that by just sending everyone in it to other inappropriate places so they can be overcrowded instead. Presumably she'll keep doing this until asylum seekers have been shoved into every possible space in the UK when she finally realises the TARDIS is fictional and none of this has worked. So far, this mistreatment and lack of caring about people's lives has caused several diphtheria outbreaks, which is odd as you'd have thought the Home Secretary would do everything she could to stop foreign bodies from causing harm, but it seems instead she's pivotal in helping them spread. Bravman admitted to the Home Affairs Select Committee last week that we have failed to control our borders, which is of course what happens if your method of control is just to tell everyone to fuck off because you don't like their face. If you ran a venue with no safe entry of getting in, you couldn't really get angry if the people who bought tickets online start climbing in the windows to see the gig. While she was unable to answer the committee's questions about how someone fleeing a war-torn country might access a safe route to the UK, Bravman still seems to think the key is for the Home Office to just be more efficient. So I guess she'll probably start bringing a cat of nine tails into work. Former Brexit Secretary and man composed entirely of orange pith, David Davis, is one of the backbenching bores demanding people from safe countries get deported quickly, saying that it's those people who are paralysing the whole system. Really, David? You don't reckon it's because it's just a shit inhumane system? Oh, and because as soon as we left the EU, anyone coming from there suddenly counted as an immigrant because they no longer had a right to work here. I mean, you know one way you could just cut those figures in half, right? Sorry, sorry, too soon, too soon. You still can't say anything is the fault of Brexit as everyone gets all a bit upset about it. It's like when someone gets a shit haircut, you're only really allowed to say how bad it was once it had grown out. Sadly, we're coming up to three full years of Brexit and that's not happened yet, not least because it's stunting any possibility of growth. But still, the government plough on with it being a good idea like someone who got lost on a journey and is now out of food and water but still assures the rest of the family what they must do is throw the map away and follow their instinct. The Prime Minister is keen to go harder and push ahead with removing 4,000 pieces of EU law from the British statute book by December 31st next year. But senior civil servants, businesses, unions and, well, anyone who'd ever like to sell anything outside of the street they live on have all said he really shouldn't do that. You know, for at least another three years, because hopefully by that point it'll be safe to look back and go, see, mullets didn't look good on anyone, let's make sure we never do that again. Scrapping these laws, according to people who know things, and by that I mean no one in government, would threaten fixing any sort of treasury black hole. But then I suppose how else would Sunak keep making sure the British public had to push wheelbarrows of cash to buy a Freddo? There appears to be a vast amount of Brexit consequence blindness, even when it's highlighted by businesses or the Office of Budget Responsibility. When the Chancellor and inspiration behind urban myth The Grinning Man, Jeremy Hunt, was asked on Sky News if he accepted the OBR's report saying Brexit had definitely harmed trade, he said no, before then accepting all the other bits the OBR said in order to say that austerity made sense. You can't just pick and choose like that, mate. It's all or nothing, isn't it? I'd be a shit vegetarian if I only read and agreed with the ingredients in something that weren't meat. Hunt said that he hoped the British public would understand the tax rises aren't misery for misery's sake, which we all know it isn't, right? It's misery so Jeremy Hunt's beady little eyes can glint with glee at the thought of ordinary people's life expectancy ticking lower. We've all got to just use less energy, apparently, and not only will that save us money, but as the Chancellor says, it will stop the UK being blackmailed by people like Russian President and vintage man in the moon drawing, Vladimir Putin. Will it? 
How? I mean, I had no idea he owned Shell and BP too. Or is it that Vlad's already told the Tories he'll release a ton of info about what all the Russian donor money they had was spent on unless people leave Russian gas for Russians? It's tricky to say, but the UK households have cut energy by 10% apparently, so take that Putin, you dick. Nothing like helping Ukraine by eating a raw potato while you can no longer feel your fingers. Still, at least it's a better effort than the British government, who's currently only aiding the war by sending over Foreign Secretary and Napoleon Fish with glasses, James Cleverly, to make a visit to Kiev. Come on, that's not fair, is it? They've got enough to do without having to show a grown man how to put his jacket on and eat with a spoon. Cleverly announced that the UK would be sending 24 ambulances to Ukraine, which, judging by current waiting times, means they won't get there until long after the conflict is over. Saying that, if they're full of British patients in need of assistance, they'll probably still get seen quicker travelling across Europe to a war zone than waiting in an NHS A&E. The healthcare system is now that character in a film that says, no, go on without me, save yourselves. Staff shortages are very, very high. Apparently, since Brexit, we have 4,000 fewer European doctors and 58,000 fewer nurses. Sorry, I mean, since nothing, for nothing, forget I said anything. With all these job vacancies, it's a shame that there's absolutely no one around to fill them all, isn't there? Sigh, now everyone, carry on loading up the catapult with asylum seekers. Quickly, hurry. Nurses are going on strike on December the 15th and 20th to protest about their real terms pay cut that means they're currently getting 10% less than they did in 2010. Routine services may be hit, but don't worry, the government has said the army could step in and help. No, I didn't have an appointment for that kind of shot. I'm sure there's nothing like the bedside manner of someone who's been trained to kill. If you do have an appointment and an army sergeant asks you to undress so they can check you, do cry for help if they also make you wear a bag on your head classic UK in 2022 that ambulances go to help in a war while the military go to help in hospitals. Perhaps it doesn't help that our Prime Minister obviously thinks the NHS is in such a state that even he won't use it. He's registered with a private GP who charged 250 quid per appointment and are available 24-7 and it does seem like such a shame that Rishi Sunak spends all that money and yet they still can't work out why he's unable to grow taller than a thumb. This is probably what you'd have expected if it wasn't for the fact that Sunak insisted during his summer leadership campaign, you know, for the time he lost, that of course he and his family use the NHS. Though he didn't say as what, so I guess it could have just been as something to throw on the table when he plays poker with all his rich mates, or perhaps as something to point at and laugh at when they've got family round and a private doctor is handing out antidepressants as imperatives. While most of the country are worried about affording anything and would prefer nurses got paid properly rather than them having to have a lieutenant treat their ailment by telling it to do 100 push-ups, the Conservatives are rowing about wind. Sunak pledged to keep a ban on new offshore wind farms, maybe because he's being blackmailed by Putin or something, but a number of Tory MPs want it overturned. No, I haven't checked if they've got investments with wind farm companies yet or not, but it can't just be because they believe in renewable energy, can it? I mean, that would be so out of character. Apparently, the issue is that Sunak wants to focus on offshore wind as that way it's someone else's problem and I guess potentially it could just blow all the sewage elsewhere or, and I bet Suella Braverman has plans drawn up for this, dinghies. It is the in-party squabble this week and as much as it seems ridiculous, not least because those who are opposed to wind farms are often also the lazy bastards who insist technology will fix climate change but then don't like it when it does, I would be super happy if the Conservatives fought each other again just because of powerful air. Though I suppose in many ways it's not that different to when they got angry about Liz Truss. The other problem the government have is that of Baroness Michelle Moan, the kind of person who you wouldn't let anywhere near government even in a hallmark drama. The peer received over £200 million worth of contracts to make PPE, despite the fact that she's most famous for owning a lingerie company which is the least protective clothing out there. From these contracts, her and her children received £29 million of personal profit, which she then popped into an offshore trust. Moan has a history of tax avoidance, quackery and racism, so I guess it makes total sense that she had access to the VIP lane for PPE contracts, and to be honest, I'm surprised with those qualifications, she wasn't made Brexit secretary at some point. The government are going to be questioned about how they explain that she was fit to receive government cash and what checks they actually carried out, but I suppose we do have to remember there is a treasury black hole that doesn't exist, so I'm sure she'll get to keep it all, because it's not fine for people to come over here, but our money going over there is great because a pants lady asked nicely. At least the man responsible for all this will be flying back from Australia any day now, as former health secretary and son of a pair and a knee, Matt Hancock, came third in the ITV reality show I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out Of Here. Many have questioned just why people would vote to keep Hancock in the show that he was getting paid £400,000 to appear in, but I suspect it's because the longer he was in a jungle in Australia, the less time he was in the UK. If there was some option to leave him in that jungle for 30 years, I reckon ITV's telephone lines would have collapsed under demand. 
Still, despite letting over 150,000 people die unnecessarily just because he was horny and wanted to give all the money to his pub landlord, Matt Hancock didn't get into the final two contestants. He said he went in there to show his human side, which proves he does indeed have two faces, and that he wanted to raise awareness of dyslexia, which then he didn't talk about much at all. Maybe it's because, like when he was health secretary, he thought he could solve conditions by just saying them out loud a few times and then doing fuck all about them. There is something very comforting to know, though, that no matter how bad the British public are at voting and opting for bants rather than justice or equality, that prick still didn't win and still had to eat kangaroo dick. And from that, we can take it that if this is the beginning of further televisual dissent that we're heading into, at least audience votes will mean the ghost of Harold Shipman won't make it past the quarterfinals of Strictly. In other news, there have been more bullying complaints about Justice Secretary and what it would look like if you skinned the Grinch, Dominic Raab, but Raab insists he behaved professionally at all times. He didn't say for what profession, though, and there's every chance he meant head chef or PE teacher. Twelve Conservative MPs have announced they're standing down at the next election, with supposedly more to announce they're doing the same later this week. The average age of the Tory MPs leaving is 48.6 years old, so are they jumping ship while they know they still have the energy to swim elsewhere, or have they just already sorted enough sweet lobbying deals to retire early? MP for Norwich North and cross between olive oil from Popeye and a head injury, Chloe Smith, didn't give any reasons for not running for her seat again, but she said it was the right time for her and her young family. Which is a shame, as after her tenure in the DWP, the right time for everyone else's families would have been about 15 years ago. How you might imagine a used car salesman in an advert warning people against using them, MP David Warburton, was found in breach of parliamentary code last week, over a £150,000 loan from a Russia's businessman that he failed to declare. He's avoiding all punishment though, as he said sorry. Yeah, turns out that's all you need, so if there's anyone else out there taking money from suspicious sources, you should be fine if you just say to the cops, apologies gov, I'll be on my way. Warburton said he didn't declare it as the cash had nothing to do with his job as an MP and in no way influenced him. But he's also being investigated for grievances and substance abuse, so it's tricky not to assume he was under the influence of something. Still, I bet even with Russian back money, he stuck it to Putin by turning the heating down slightly in one of his homes. And lastly, mass protests are taking place all over China against the government's continued zero-Covid approach, which includes super strict lockdowns whenever any cases are found, which is, well, all the time, and so no one is getting to do anything. The symbol of these protests is a piece of blank paper held up to challenge authorities to see if they'll arrest people for not saying anything. I mean, it does, though, run the risk of the authorities taking a picture, superimposing crude willy drawings on them, and then sticking them up on Twitter, though. Protesters are calling for President, a man who always looks like he's in the midst of doing a fart impression, Xi Jinping, to stand down, which unfortunately isn't really how authoritarian states work. But people have power, and the government will either have to reduce restrictions or import vaccines from other countries, which really kind of ruins their nationalistic vibe. I, however, would suggest they take a leaf from the UK's book and operate a zero-Covid policy by just pretending it doesn't exist anymore and never talking about it ever again. Sorry, a slightly ill-informed bit on the China protests at the end there, as I realised I hadn't read enough about it before doing this week's show, and then I thought about it, and I wrote jokes anyway. Who lets facts get in the way of not very good gags? That's cancel culture talk right there, isn't it? I am the one guy railing against us comedians having to be more factual than politicians. Uh, I will actually research it a lot more for next week. I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. I have a job at the moment where I got asked, um, are you happy doing the research or should we hire a researcher too? As we know you do research for your podcast. And I went, yeah, I'll do it. And now I'm just hoping they don't realise that all I actually do is search things on Twitter until I find a comment I can do wordplay on. Um, if I was a museum researcher, all the info cards would just be very, very vague, very unhelpful. But on the plus side, funny-ish. This is why, when Twitter eventually dies, which was supposedly last week, maybe this week, maybe next week, who knows, possibly never, um, then this show is just going to have no facts in it whatsoever. Uh, thanks, chums, for being here, or, you know, wherever you are. Uh, big thanks to Doug for joining the Patreon, and, you know, if you fancy bunging me cash for not doing research properly, no, wait, sorry, in fact, don't research that, then you won't know, will you? Um, if you fancy bunging me cash for all the hard research I do, don't look it up, then you can join the completely unrewarding patreon.com forward slash parpolbro, or if you fancy one-off flingings of cash, then chuck them at kofi, ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro. All are super appreciated in these times of crises of costs of living. Mega thanks to you to Andy for the lovely Apple Podcast reviews. You have all stepped up to my whinging that I haven't had any reviews for this show for ages. And let me say, I appreciate that. And by you all, I mean Michael last week and Andy this week. But you know, hey, a 52% can still be the will of the people. I'm just saying. Nothing much else to say this week, really. Um, There'll be a show next week and then one after. And that is going to be it for a little bit of a Christmas break. Uh, except maybe, who knows, Newstradamus might do some... Uh, 
some predictions, who knows? Um, and I'm going to spend the time trying to work out new ways to describe people and make jokes about exactly the same issues for the six billionth time. Oh, God, it's... Oh, God. Um, but until then, on this week's show, I am chatting to the brilliant Jolie Brearley at Pregnant Then Screwed, and I managed to bring up Whitney Houston while we chat because that is the kind of professional I am. Um, we sang Greatest Love of All in my Year 7 music class, and it's basically been on loop in my head ever since. It's not right, but it's okay. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. If you hate yourself enough to spend time on social media, you'll see on a daily basis many comparisons of the Conservative government to George Orwell's 1984. Thought Police, the Ministry of Truth, that bit where they put rats near Winston's face as a punishment not being at all unlike every time we've had to see Grant Shapps on TV. But really, it's more like a story written by a three-year-old. But actually, sorry, I've got to pretend I've got some sort of literary awareness. Um, really, I've always thought of it as much more like Joseph Heller's Catch-22. Haha, <laughs> I'm so smart. A never-ending series of self-caused difficult situations made inescapable by their own ridiculous needs. I mean, obviously, it's not as well-written as that, or funny, and has nowhere near as many likeable characters. But if you look at the current government ethos on working... They are focused on getting everyone into work as one measure to fix the deficit. But also to fix the deficit, they won't be making work pay any better and they'll be making even more cuts to support services so even fewer people who need them will actually be able to work. By fixing these support services, people could work, but it would also cost the government money, ruining their whole stupid argument about the need to get people into work in the first place. It's some catch they've made for themselves. That's a quote from the book there, really clever. One of the many, many reasons people, and in particular women, can't work is the cost and availability of childcare. Human kids are so bloody selfish, aren't they? I mean, a baby Ibex would be up and running within minutes of being born, but our children need years of attention and care, meaning you can't just leave them in front of the telly for 40 hours a week while you head to the office in case a lion turns up. But at the same time, sending them to nursery costs more than you'd be earning at work, so hey-ho, now you're both at home in front of CBeebies, which is arguably a really great way to spend your time. Maybe there is very little care about childcare in the UK because most Conservatives, when they're born, are immediately packaged up and sent to a boarding school until they're 40, checked if they have any emotions left and, if not, are made Prime Minister. Even if that's not entirely true, money for childcare was left out of the Orton Statement entirely by Jeremy Hunt, a man who regularly looks like if he saw a child, he'd just assume they were a grown-up standing very far away. The cost of childcare as part of the cost of living crisis is putting particular pressure on mums, single parents and for a number of people is putting them off having children entirely. So good luck trying to, as they keep saying, look to British workers, not immigration in 20 years when we're going to have a population of just double digits and they'll all be the offspring of Boris Johnson. Currently, the only vague solution the government have even mentioned is just to reduce the safe staff to child ratio in early years care, as I assume that will save costs when your kid is in A&E, which is much cheaper than the nursery day rate. Which is, of course, what every parent wants. How big an issue is this? Why is childcare in the UK so bad? And is the big problem that if proper support and care for children was given, the Conservatives' breeding programme would fail and they'd be extinct within a few decades? This week, I spoke to Jolie Brearley at Pregnant Then Screwed, the brilliant campaign group arguing for better rights for parents, better childcare provisions and flexible working. 
Set up when Jolie was fired after informing her employer she was pregnant, she set up Pregnant Then Screwed in 2015 to support mothers who'd been discriminated against, and it's become ever more needed every year since. Just a few weeks ago, thousands of people took part in the March of the Mummies, organised by the group to protest for government reform on childcare, parental leave and flexible working. And I asked Jolie all about, well, that and what impact inflation will have on childcare providers, why the UK is so far behind the rest of the world when it comes to this, and if we're looking at a few where the country is just overrun with tiny Johnsons. Well, not the last one, but also tiny Johnsons. <laughs> this is a great chat with Jolie, so I hope you enjoy whether you're a parent or just someone who's once seen kids in a film or read about them in a book. Here is Jolie. Hi, Jolie. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast this week. Um, I'll start right at the top. We've got, uh, you know, horrific cost of living problems. The IFS have said that uh, inflation is going to keep rising, which we're talking on a day when it already has, and that this inflation is going to, uh, and I'll quote, significantly erode funding for early years care in nurseries and childcare providers over the next three years. Um, so as as a parent, I'm going to ask, what effect is this going to have on parents uh, and families and childcare providers? It's probably worth just giving you a bit of background on the funding and why it's already a massive problem. So we, the government subsidises childcare for some families from the age of two. So if you are on certain benefits, you can access 15 hours worth of free childcare for a two-year-old. When the child turns three, all families can access 15 hours of free childcare. If both parents are working and earning below £100,000, then they can access another 15 hours of free, I'm going to put free in inverted commas, although you can't see me, uh, childcare. The problem is those subsidies are massively underfunded by the government. And we only know this because the Early Years Alliance did a freedom of information request uh, to the government saying we want to know how those subsidies work and the government tried to not give it them and they had to go take legal action against them. Finally, they got the information and discovered that it's underfunded by almost £3 per child per hour and that when they set this funding, the government acknowledged that this would be a massive problem for nurseries and that what they'd have to do is pass those costs down the chain so that the costs would increase for one-year-olds and two-year-olds and it would also mean that parents, some parents would have to leave the workforce and care for their own children. Obviously, that usually always falls to mothers. So it was all there in black and white that they had purposefully underfunded the scheme and that it would cause all these problems. And so that's when we really started to see uh, the crisis in childcare begin because nurseries couldn't top up that money. They couldn't find what, you know, they had to pass these costs down the chain. And it also meant that they had to pay childcare workers minimum wage. They couldn't afford to pay them any more than that. And so childcare workers feel undervalued and underpaid and they're leaving the workforce. Um and then we had COVID, hurrah, and that uh, created even more challenges because fewer kids were coming to nursery and the pub and the government started funding childcare on uh, pandemic occupancy levels rather than pre-pandemic occupancy levels, which of course meant that their funding again decreased. And then after COVID, we had a cost of living crisis and their costs have started to increase in terms of food and electricity and all of that stuff. And it's just meant that the childcare sector has started to collapse before our very eyes. We saw 4,000 nurseries close last year um, as a result of all of these issues. And we're expecting many more closures to come. Now, the fact that the, they're not going to increase those subsidies in line with inflation obviously just makes it even more difficult for the nurseries because they can't afford for it, not to, for them not to have these subsidies. And so inevitably, the problem will be nurseries will close. We already have a problem with parents being able to access childcare, particularly, you know, really good childcare. Um, and those that stay open will have to increase their costs even further. And yesterday we discovered that we are now, hurrah, great accolade for the UK, the most expensive childcare system in the developed world. Wow. That's what, when they say world leading. That's another example, isn't it? They're right there, <laughs> world leading. In the, I mean, I, I, our daughter is uh, so she just started school this year, and the fact that we don't have to pay for nursery anymore has been such. I mean, it's been amazing. I, I had no idea how much nursery costs were until our daughter went to one. Um, and and then of course, even when the thirty three hours kicked in, there was still during the pandemic. You know, food prices got up, so we had to pay a service, an extra service cost on each day, and it. 
it's so expensive on, on top of all the other costs. Uh, and, and that surely goes against, you know, a lot of the other chat that we have. We've got to get people in work and everyone's going to be working. But it, it's it's pointless working when you're going to be spending it all on childcare. It's, I mean, yeah, it doesn't add up, does it? It doesn't make any sense. Two thirds of parents say they pay the same or more for their childcare as they do their rent or their mortgage. So this is their biggest expenditure. It's more than housing. You could literally become a property magnate if you can afford childcare and, you know, buy yourself another house, perhaps in the Bahamas for holiday. And that just doesn't add up. You know, almost half of mums say they're considering leaving their job because of childcare costs. And the government's own data from 2018 showed that there were 870,000 stay-at-home mums who want to work. They really want to, but they can't because of childcare costs and availability. That just doesn't add up to me. It doesn't make any sense. You know, we're telling people to go and work. We're saying the only way to dig yourself out of poverty is work. And they're making it impossible for both parents to be able to earn a living. And and one of the sort of uh, ideas that's, that's been uh, sort of touted about reducing costs for nursery has been this childcare ratio, having fewer staff to kids, which I mean... I don't. I mean, the, the I don't know how they cope with the amount of kids they have to deal with anyway. <laughs> so, but I'm, I'm I'm exhausted by one of from one of them. But but I'm guessing that's not safe. What you know? What's what's been the debate on this, and and what does it mean in terms of the safety of of uh, early years care providers? Um, I mean, steam comes out of my ears when I talk about this notion. Of <laughs> okay, <laughs> just. Find the whole thing so galling. And as you say, I mean, I can barely look after my two. So the idea that you're going to give in childcare professionals five children to look after the age of two, that are two years old. I mean, two-year-old toddlers are savages. Like they're they're just like <laughs> nightmares to look after. Um the debate was triggered by Zoe and Lewis Steeper, who whose son Oliver tragically died in a nursery setting. He died from choking. And they believe that nurseries already can be unsafe environments. And so to give childcare professionals more children to look after inevitably increases safety risks. And so they obviously, the incredible, courageous humans that they are, feel really passionately about this and that they don't want any other parents to have to go through what they've been through. It really is an absolutely preposterous suggestion that by increasing ratios, you're going to do any good at all. There's no evidence that it will reduce cost to parents, no evidence whatsoever. There is evidence that it reduces the quality of the childcare that you can give a child. And this is off the back, right off the back of a pandemic when uh, we know that children, report after report says children need more support, not less. You, you You are going to create a system that gives them less support. And it's the government seems to think that they can just sort of pull this lever that says ratios and out of the bottom, a load of money will fall out and everybody will be happy rather than looking at this whole system, the holistic system. And we have a workforce crisis. Childcare professionals are leaving childcare in in droves. You can't recruit childcare staff at the moment because they get paid minimum wage. You get paid more for working at McDonald's or Aldi, you know, you're valued more for flipping burgers than you are for educating our youngest, most precious little humans. And we know that early years education is the foundation for a child's future. The first five years of their life are the most critical to their development. Report after report says that. But we just seem to, in the UK, we don't seem to have got the memo like we every other country seems to understand this except us and so rather than investing in this critical phase of a child's development the government are looking at solutions that will just make it even worse in terms of quality and um, so we've been campaigning against it as have every everybody else it seems you know nobody wants this to happen we know parents don't want it to happen um and we know Childcare professionals don't want it to happen and nursery providers don't want it to happen. Everybody is against this. And pretty much every MP that spoke in that debate said, this is a terrible idea. Why Why on earth are you thinking of doing this? 
Um, and unfortunately, the response from the minister, although she said she is listening, was very much that they will continue to look at this as a as an option, um, which is really disappointing. Really disappointing. I, I, I remember that when it was first announced, it was on the same day. They also said they'd reduce how often you have to have an MOT on your car as if you'd prefer a bargain. You know, I don't mind having my car on fire and <laughs> as long as I got a few quid off. It's just the weirdest mindset, I think, to make all these things less safe uh, in order to save us money. I mean, you know, it's, it's something you mentioned earlier. We're, we're world leading in kind of costs for childcare. Obviously, child safety is now becoming an issue. And, and you know, forgive me for being an idealist. I Like Whitney Houston said, whatever, I believe the children are our future. Surely they're the most important. They're, they're, you know... They they've got to be looked after, but with with school funding going down, with with childcare costs rocketing, like why why are we so behind as a country in supporting parents and particularly uh, mums in in work and in being able to afford childcare? Is it you know is it because we've had sort of years of austerity? Is there an, I, I mean basically I don't understand why this is happening because as I mentioned, you know we've also got this whole chat about we've got to get people in work, we've got to have and none of the support is there to do any of the things that that, that they have the rhetoric about. I mean, I wish I understood it. <laughs> <laughs> I realise I'm asking you a very impossible. Why are they like this? Um, but yeah. I mean, I would propose, and uh, you know, people will probably think I'm uh, uh, not I'm being a bit shallow by saying this, but you know, the people that are making the decisions tend to predominantly all be men who have nannies and lots of money, and so they're just not directly affected by these issues, and so they don't see it as a problem. That is definitely contributing to it, without a doubt. You know, and potentially because the the arguments are so clear, so clear that if you invest in childcare, it's good for the economy, it's good for families, it's good for children, um, and they've they've got to have see have read some of that evidence. Surely, surely they um, understand because it's I mean it's obvious to most people that you know you get more people back into the workplace if you invest in childcare. Um, so perhaps there's something ideological there. Perhaps, you know, perhaps this conservative government want more women at home with their children and think that that's the right way. I don't know, because it's the arguments are obvious to me. Yeah, yeah. So I do, I do wonder as well. Most of their kids are in boarding school, you know, and they get sent away as soon as they're born or whatever. I'm, I'm obviously generalising there, but it's you know, it's whenever you look at other countries, you know, especially often sort of Scandinavia's uh, highlighted, but lots of other countries around the world put this, put this as such a big priority, and it it really seems that we're very we're very far behind on so many elements of it. We're just, I mean, we are world beating in being absolutely awful at childcare. <laughs> it's not just the cost. You know, if you look, if you compare the UK to other liberal welfare states, so Canada, Australia, Japan, Switzerland, um, New Zealand, we have the lowest qualification threshold for staff. So that our staff tend to be not very qualified. Uh, they have the lowest pay out of all of those other countries. Um, and uh, we, you know, we have the highest costs as well. So we're just, <laughs> we we are so far behind and it's been years of neglect that has led to this. We, we've been calling for radical change to our childcare sector for the last eight years. Organisations like the Early Years Alliance have been calling for this for, you know, 15 years. And in that time, things have deteriorated they've not improved there've been there's been nothing to improve the situation at all of course we had the 30 hours free that was brought in by david cameron's government as a way to help him win the election but that actually that's 30 hours free created more problems than solutions because it was so poorly underfunded and so whenever the government have have done anything on childcare it's always been to get people back into work to enable people to work although it the it hasn't worked do what they've done um but you can't just build a childcare sector that where you treat it like it's babysitting because it's not babysitting it's far more than that these people and it's nearly all women working in the childcare sector are professionals they are educating children and they've got to be treated with respect and valued and otherwise 
you know, you put out what you get in and you're putting crap in, you're going to get crap out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, you know, I was wondering, is this, do you think this is affecting or, or putting people off having kids? Because we've had very low birth rates now for two years. I think in 2020, it was the lowest birth rate since 2002 in the UK. Last year was like, a, I've got it here, 1.8% rise on that. But, you know, the costs are so high. There must be people looking at think, well, there's there's no point in us ever becoming parents. Yeah, I mean, it definitely, definitely is a factor. And the number of articles I've read uh, talking about the fact that we've we we haven't got enough babies, where people propose, oh, it's to do with the environment, or you know, all of this kind of nonsense rhetoric. It's not. It's to do with the fact that the system doesn't work for mums, and so they're just not as as one Tory put it, bonking for Britain, because we don't want to have our careers ruined and we want to keep a roof over our heads and food on the table. And we know from research that we've done that a third of parents say they cannot afford to have more children because of the childcare system. And we surveyed 1,700 women who'd had an abortion in the last five years. And six in 10 said that the one of the reasons they had an abortion was because of childcare costs. One in five said it was the reason they terminated a wanted pregnancy was because of childcare costs. Wow. So it's, and that's, I mean, it's, that is devastating. The fact that, you know, the stories that we heard from women were just heartbreaking that they really wanted this baby and they looked at the financials of it. The fact that they'd either have to give up work because they couldn't afford childcare or they'd be forking out for childcare. And they thought, well, I, I'll end up homeless. Like I, I can't, so I, I can't have this baby. And so they had to terminate the pregnancy. We also know that women are turning to sex work to pay for childcare. We, um, in one of our surveys, asked if if women were doing other work in order to pay their childcare bill and a large proportion said they were. And then we asked them what kind of work and 24 women told us that they were having, they were, they were forced to do sex and pornography work to pay their childcare bill. I mean, what, what is going on? Like, why, how can we be allowing this to happen? And, you know, right under our noses, and we still have no credible strategy, no credible plan, not even a huge amount of acknowledgement from the government that this is a real problem. Well, I mean, I mean that is absolutely shocking stuff. I, I mean, I, that sort of moves me on to the next question, which is, you know, in an I, if we lived in this amazing dream world, what reform is needed? What reform should there be? And I suppose the bigger question, is there any drive from any of the political parties for it to happen anytime soon when we've got these next two two years at least of, of recession so in terms of the reform you'll hear lots of people offering tidbits of tweaks to the system that could be made that will perhaps make it more affordable and they they are great and there are things that we can do with the current system that would improve it the way that the subsidy works is not helpful and actually excludes low paid low income families um, but really what we need is investment and the government often trots out the figure that, well, we invest five to six billion pounds in childcare every year and that's a lot of money. Well, it sounds a lot of money, but if you compare it to other countries, it's not. It's actually really small percentage of GDP and the government spends a lot less on the first five years of a child's life than they do after the uh, first five years of a child's life. In other countries, it's the other way around. They spend a lot more on children under the age of five because the research supports that that's the way to spend your money because those are the uh, critical periods for development. Um, so it's it's got to be about investment. If you're going to fix it, you can't just do little tweaks here and there and paper over the cracks. You've got to properly invest in it. And by investment, I mean creating a system that's affordable. By affordable, I mean really no more than 5% of household income. Uh, you, we need better provision for disabled children, children with special educational needs because they are really missing out. And we need to pay childcare professionals properly for the really important job that they do. So I would say they should be paid the same as what primary school teachers are currently paid. Um, and you, you know, there's, we have 70% of providers in the UK are private, they're profit making businesses, not that they actually make a profit, the majority of them. But I also think there's a 
there's something that needs to be looked at there. Why have we, why, why is it okay to have a state subsidized education system from the age of five, but below the age of five is privatized and we have to pay an absolute fortune for it? Why do we suddenly decide at the age of five, oh, right, children now deserve an education? They deserve it when they're younger as well. And it's a massive risk to our economy because we, lots of the nurseries in the UK have been bought up by big conglomerates. So Busy Bees, which is the biggest nursery uh, company in the UK, is owned by a Canadian company. So any of the profits are actually not even coming back into the UK, they're going out to Canada. And if that chain collapses, that's a massive risk to our economy because suddenly you've got thousands of parents who haven't got childcare. So there's lots of risks as well in the system. The whole system is just a mess <laughs> and needs to be fixed. In terms of um, whether the political parties are doing anything on this, uh, Labour have are making some really good noises. We haven't seen any concrete policies as yet but certainly from the conversations I've had with Bridget Phillipson and with Helen Hayes they really do care about childcare in early years and they really do want to invest in it I think they're tightening up what they're going to offer and then they will be announcing that very soon but I've I've been very pleased with what I've heard from them so far Um, and they are looking as far as I understand it to invest a considerable amount more money in early years and also looking at after school and breakfast clubs as well. The Liberal Democrats in the last manifesto um, had said that they would invest a lot more money in childcare and that they would aim to ultimately create a free system of childcare where they are now. I don't know, um, but I, I do know that they also would like to do more on childcare. The Conservative Party are taking this more seriously than they certainly were two years ago. Two years ago, you'd have a conversation with a Conservative MP about childcare or a think a right-wing think tank and they'd look at you like you'd lost your mind. Like, why would we care about that? We're not interested. It's a different conversation entirely now. Uh, but so far, all of the suggestions that we have heard have been about how we use the current spending on childcare differently, not about new investment. And as I say, it's it's tweaking, it's polishing a turd, really. You need proper investment for it to work. It's it's good to know that like, at least the conversations are being had uh, when they weren't before. I mean, it, it does feel to me like an, a, yet another situation of we just every single week on this podcast talk to someone where in one of these situations, it feels like it's coming to a head and something is going to have to be done about it. Otherwise, yeah. you can find yourself in a situation where just a large chunk of the country can't work and can't do anything and... Oh goodness! Well, you know, I was gonna, I was gonna ask about, you know, about the march of the mummies because that looked absolutely amazing. You had absolutely thousands and thousands of 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 mums and, and parents on that march. Um, tell tell me a bit about it, and I wondered if is are you planning uh, more action like that, and um, also how how can listeners support pregnant then screwed. Oh, March of the Mummies was glorious. It's it was such a fun day, and it. I think protesting in that way, you know, peaceful, joyful protest is so important when you're so furious because it's just a really positive way to express that anger and to come together to say, you know, you're not alone. We all feel like this and together we can we can make change happen. So it happens in 11 cities across the UK. We had 15,000 parents attend and the protest was... Uh, because we feel that the, the current system is making it impossible for two parents to work, yet it's making it impossible for two parents not to work. And so we're just caught in this trap. And, you know, the government can do things to change this. They're just ignoring us. And they've been ignoring us for years. And so we want to see affordable, good quality childcare. We want parental leave to uh, be paid properly. Currently, parental leave is paid at 47% of national minimum wage. So it means that parents, mothers are returning to work well before they're ready or they start their child is starting life in real poverty. They're starting life in masses of, of debt and, you know, in a complete mess. But also dads get two weeks, if that, paid at £156 a week. It's nothing. And 
they are desperate to spend more time with their children and should be enabled to spend more time with their kids. Um, but again, we are the worst country in Europe for paternity leave, the third worst country in Europe for maternity leave. So, you know, you've got to respect and value parenting, you know, um, and and parental leave is, is a way to do that. And then uh, we want to see all jobs as flexible by default. And so by that, we, we mean an advertising duty on employers. They have to stipulate the types of flexible working that are available for that job unless they have a good business reason not to, because flexible working, of course, means that you are enabled to manage your personal and professional obligations, your labor and your unpaid labor effectively. And only 10% of jobs are advertised as part-time in the UK. And so it means that usually it's the mother who uh, has to reduce her hours because of all the unpaid labour. But because there are so few part-time jobs that are good quality, she has to take a pay cut and a demotion, ends up on what's affectionately called the mummy track. And um, no wonder we have a gender pay gap. Hello, gender pay gap. It's because everything counts against... Uh, women in particular in the labour force. So that march was really to dem- to make those three demands to come together, um, to energise, re-energise ourselves after the pandemic and say, we can do this we, and we're going to fight for it. You can't keep us quiet. And, and I mean, it sounded like it went absolutely brilliantly. And I mean, you got a lot of attention for it as well, which is fantastic. I, I just really enjoyed looking. I was so gutted we couldn't make it, but we looked at all the photos and was looking at social media. It looked absolutely amazing. Um, and, you know, what, what's, uh, have you, have you uh, I, sh- I should say that before we started recording, you said you're having a bit of a, a break after that, which I completely understand because it, it's quite a lot of effort to put on a march of that size. Um, but I'm guessing more campaigning is planned. And and as I said, more importantly, how do how do listeners hearing this support you and support Pregnant Men Screwed? Yeah, we've got a letter that people can send to their MPs following March of the Mummies that outlines why these three campaigning areas are really important. and. The best way to support us is follow us on social media. So Instagram is where we we tend to hang out the most and we are at pregnant underscore then underscore screwed. And we ask people to do things all the time, like calls to action, email your MP, fill in this petition, do whatever to keep the pressure on. Um, More on Twitter, more on Facebook. And uh, we have a website, which is pregnantthenscrewed.com. So it, we we are sort of gearing ourselves up for the next phase of what happens after March of the Mummies. But, you know, we've been going now for eight years. We've been going for a long time and we just get stronger and stronger each year and more adept at understanding how to ensure our message is communicated effectively and reaches the places that it needs to reach. But we've these are big campaigns and we've we've got a it's a marathon, not a sprint. These aren't thing, aren't things that are going to change overnight. We've got to be in it for the long haul. So we just need people. And we have got an amazing community of over 200,000 people, but we need more and more people to just be there to support and to, um, to push these messages, keep pushing these messages out there because eventually we will get the change we want, but not without continuous pressure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, listen, thank you again for for having the time to chat. Um, and the the question that I ask every uh, guest on this show, which is uh, that apart from yourselves, um, and obviously you know all of the pregnant and screwed social media and website, what other writers' sites campaigns would you recommend that listeners check out for um, both in terms of support for parents, but also sort of the politics that affect families and children? Who are the people that that you go to? Oh, there's so many, too too many to mention. Um, <laughs> I would I would definitely recommend that people read Laura Bates's book, "Fix the System, Not the Women." It's absolutely brilliant, and really outlines lots of the problems with why the system just really isn't working uh, for women. So definitely read that. I mean, anything that Laura Bates writes, I just gobble up immediately because I think she's wonderful. Um, Five Times More is a brilliant campaign to follow, uh, ran by two black women called Tanuke and Chloe. And they started the campaign because they both had really terrible experiences in maternity care. And the data shows it, it was that five times as many black women die in childbirth as white women. It's now three times as many black women 
Um, but they are doing lots of campaigning around this to uh to to get an independent review to understand why this is happening and to make the changes that are needed in maternity care so that black women have the same experience as white women and and you know the the tragedy of the fact that so many black women die in, in childbirth and have these really negative experiences and it really needs to be explored a lot a lot further and they're really pushing that and doing an incredible job um on that same note, March for Midwives is an amazing uh, campaign, grassroots, very grassroots campaign group who are fighting for investment in maternity care because the maternity care system is a total mess. Again, through lack of investment, through neglect, we have midwives leaving the workforce in droves, feeling undervalued, feeling completely exhausted. And ultimately, that means that women are going in and having babies and having horrendous experiences and we're seeing we've seen in the most recent report that the number of suicides of new mums has has shot up as well as the number of women dying in childbirth more broadly has shot up recently and of course we all we all heard about the Ockenden report and and other really tragic horrendous experiences of women in maternity care so they're really fighting for investment in um in maternity care and are doing a great job of it. Um, Mother Pucker, who runs uh, the campaign Flex Appeal and is fighting for better access to flexible working for everybody. And she's just launched Work Your Way, which is a jobs market for people who are looking for flexible working that works for them and works around their families. Um, And then I mean, there's a great New York Times journalist who I love called Claire Kane Miller, who really writes quite a lot about the motherhood penalty. And there's another, there's a group in America called Marshall Plan for Moms, which is basically pregnant this group, but American. And uh, they are fighting for investment in childcare, in parental leave, very similar to us and uh, making waves in America as well. Thank you to Jolie for having time to let me interview her and to Celia at Pregnant Then Screwed as well who helped to arrange it. You can find Pregnant Then Screwed at PregnantThenScrewed.com, at Pregnant Screwed on Twitter, Pregnant underscore then underscore Screwed on Instagram and at Maternity Discrimination on Facebook. Announcements are going to be coming up soon for the 2023 Reset Festival of Motherhood and Mental Health. So do sign up to all their socials for details on that when it happens. Who should I talk to on this podcast next year? Let me know you're hot for necessary political chats for 2023 and send them over to me at Bro on whichever social media sites are still standing by then or at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Finn! No, sorry, that's how you end a podcast about sharks. Ah, I mean, that's the end of this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. If you want all the other kids at school or work chumps around the water cooler or um, monks at the altar to join in your chat about this week's episode, then why not tell them to give it a listen and subscribe? If you can, please donate to the ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro or join the patreon.com forward slash parpolbro. And if you have any spare time after all that, please pop a nice five-star review for the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or other such homes of pod too. Gracias to Acast, my brother last sceptic, and Cat Day. And this will be back next week when Rishi Sunak and Suella Bravman decide the best way to lower immigration figures is not just by letting no one into the country, but also by making everyone in it leave. And the whole of the UK has to stand very closely together in Jersey until the next bunch of figures are taken. Bye. This week's show is sponsored by Dr. Army. Do you need to see a doctor or do you just need to stop being a wimp? Dr. Army is here to tell you that the way to treat that severe pain in your leg is a 5k obstacle course through mud. Eyesight problems? Well, we'll see if it clears up when you have to choose if the person you're aiming at is a friend or foe. Worried you're losing your memory? You'd better remember what you went into the room for when I order you into a village to steal cultural artefacts. Dr. Army, who needs GPs when we've got GPS tracking on all of our drones? Now stop bleeding out in reception. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.